Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Professor Awan Scully, from Cardiff University, who was recently appointed Head of Politics and International Relations and is very well known in uh, political circles in Wales uh, for his commentaries and also because he's involved in a project which looks at uh, tracking uh, the opinions of uh, people in Wales so far as political matters are concerned. So, Roger, tell me about your background. Where are you from? Because you're not from Wales originally, are you? No, I was born and spent most of my childhood in Luton in the southeast of England. Um, yeah, and in fact, the first time in my life I ever came to Wales was for a job interview at Aberystwyth University when I was already sort of in my late 20s. I was interested in politics from a fairly young age, though. Was there politics in the family? Not really, no. I mean, none of my immediate family were politically active, although both my parents, particularly my father, always sort of were interested in the news and current affairs, Uh, but they weren't party members or in in any other way politically active. The, The first election, I remember, was the May 1979 election when Margaret Thatcher came to power, um, I was eight, and I think I was an unusual eight-year-old in that I was absolutely fascinated by the election, and you know, I can remember watching it on the news and then going to school the following day and being rather disappointed how my classmates did not share my interest. <laughs> yes, 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 I think we've probably all had moments like that. If you were eight then, when did you decide that you actually wanted to, in a sense, have politics as your career? albeit from an academic point of view. Yeah, I think that was, as we might say, a process rather than an event. Um, I did pretty well at school, did well in exams. Um, economics was one of my A-levels, and I was initially going to be studying economics at university. I went to Lancaster University. And I suppose I was quite lucky that that was a university that um, had quite a broad first-year curriculum you studied three different subjects and as well as economics I was also studying politics and I found after a few weeks that I was much more interested and excited about my politics lectures than the economics ones and about the politics reading than the economics. So at the end of the first year I changed my degree program from economics to politics and basically um, you know, stuck with that. I you know, graduated with a good degree, did a master's and then um, got an opportunity, got a scholarship to go and study for a PhD in the United States and it was at that point I started to think about well maybe I could actually sort of do something in this area for for a living. Um, I was lucky enough to spend four years studying in the USA uh, at Ohio State University who gave me a fantastic training. When I was coming towards the end of that I applied for a few jobs in America but also uh, for some back in the UK and was lucky enough to get my first job at Brunel University in London. In Uxbridge? Yeah, and I was there for a couple of years, 
just coming towards the end of my second year when sort of out of the blue I was phoned up by somebody I knew a little bit at Aberystwyth University they had a job in my field they wanted me to apply for it um, so I ended up going to Aberystwyth and so you know I've been in in Wales for almost 20 years and when you came to Wales, so we're talking now January, roundabout... January 2000 is when I started. January 2000. Well, that was obviously just a matter of months after the inception of the Assembly. And uh, in fact, it was very shortly before the famous vote of no confidence Nanin Michael, wasn't it? When you came to Aberystwyth, to what extent were you aware of the political situation in Wales? Well, obviously, I was a, a trained political scientist and somebody who'd already, always been interested in politics, but I wasn't hired by Aberystwyth University to be a devolution specialist or you know, to be following Welsh politics. I was hired as a European Union specialist. I wrote my first two academic books on the institutional politics of the EU. But pretty soon after moving towards Aberystwyth, I started to become interested in the politics that were sort of going on around me. A couple of my good friends were academics who were working in this area in ABBA. And I suppose if, if there was a commonality between some of my studies of the EU and the interest I then developed in Welsh politics, I suppose it was the interest in seeing a new political system being created pretty much from the ground up. Seeing something you know, that starts from almost nothing and how that develops and the practices that develop been the institutions and everything that sort of developed around the formal institutions of government as well. So I suppose you know, there is that sort of common theme. I carried on for some years still with my principal area of uh, work being on the EU. But by the time I got to the end of the second book that I did on the EU, I sort of felt that I'd said everything I wanted to say on that, and I started to become really interested in politics of Wales. I suppose one thing that helped to draw me in to studying politics here is, okay, I, I did some work that I'm fairly proud of academically on the EU. I became in my specialist subfields there, so I was one of the probably half dozen people in the world whose work you, know, you had to read if you were to be on top of understanding things like the European Parliament. But although you know, there were plenty of academics who were interested in that work, nobody outside academia pretty much ever showed the slightest interest in anything I ever did on the EU. The very first piece of work that I did on public attitudes in Wales was directly influential on the report of the Richard Commission. The first major article that I wrote, uh, co-wrote with a couple of colleagues at Aberystwyth, uh, which was on the Conservative Party in Wales, I know was read by some major people in the Conservative Party in Wales, I've been told had some influence on the approach that some people took in, in trying to change and reform the party here. Um, almost immediately there was some sense of actually in this fairly small political community there were people who were really thirsting for knowledge and for good research um, and you could have an impact that was not just in terms of influencing PhD students and other fellow academics but actually influencing the broader way in which politics developed, and that was, I think, you know, quite important. I think that uh, a lot of people probably didn't realise at the time when the referendum took place in 1997 that it wasn't just 
a simple case of saying do we want an assembly or do we not but having decided by uh, of course uh, a quite narrow margin to have an assembly there's been a whole edifice and infrastructure that's been created as a consequence of that decision would you say now sort of nearly 20 years down the line that that has been for the good um well, I suppose the counterfactual is, imagine if there hadn't been a margin of 6,721 votes in favour of devolution, but a similarly narrow margin against it, and you know, what would have happened then? Um, I think if you know, the idea of the National Assembly had been rejected a second time, that political project would have been pretty much dead, but more or less permanently. I think it's actually quite plausible to imagine many people in Whitehall taking the view that in fact, you know, the Welsh did not want political autonomy or political recognition of their distinctness at all, and maybe even folded up much of the machinery of executive devolution. Maybe no Welsh office, uh, maybe just governing Wales as, as a region of England. I mean, whether devolved governance has been better than the governance we would have had from London, I think, is is a very big question. I think certainly when we ask people in our studies of public attitudes in Wales, many of them are not particularly impressed by the practical achievements of devolution, yet on the whole the majority of them still support it. And I think one of the things that's going on there is that you know they don't necessarily think that politicians at the devolved level are better, more competent or anything like that. On the whole, on average, they think devolved government is a bit rubbish really. But then a lot of them think that government in Westminster is fairly rubbish as well. I think where there is the distinction amongst quite a lot of people in Wales that they do at least think that politicians in the Assembly and around the Welsh Government are more likely to be thinking about Wales as their principal unit of concern, are focused on the problems of Wales and trying, however inexpertly and sometimes incorrectly, but trying to deliver solutions to the specific problems of Wales and in that sense at least you know devolution has probably delivered government that is more focused on specifically Wales's problems although of course it won't always get the answers to those problems right. Because from the outset of devolution there has been uh, if you like a litany of what amount to excuses from politicians in Wales about the fact that they haven't had the tools to do the job, whether that be legislative powers or fiscal powers. Are we now, following the most recent Act of Parliament from 2017, are we now in a position where those excuses are no longer valid or can they still trot them out? Uh, I, th- I think there's a couple of general points I'd make um, first in response to that. One point is simply that in the early days of devolution, there were some very valid excuses. The original devolution settlement was so opaque and confusing that people had to spend substantial amounts of time just simply working out, do we have the powers to do this or not? You know, An awful lot of energy was wasted just on trying to unpick the bizarre... You know, Byzantine um, first evolution settlements. A second general point I'd make is that I think in general we probably overstate the extent to which politicians, even government ministers, are free 
to change things, are free to act. Um, they're often working within all sorts of constraints, legal constraints, uh, constraints of you know, a country being um, part of broader international agreements and frameworks and the pressures of the global economy and, and whatever. Um, they're often working you know, without parliamentary majorities, as we know, both in the sense in the Assembly and, and at Westminster, um, have all sorts of political pressures on them. Politicians, I think, in the short term, normally have rather less room for manoeuvre than we maybe give them credit for. What I think is true, though, is that while in the short term maybe it is harder for politicians to change things than we maybe recognise, it is also possible, I think, often for politicians to have longer-term impacts, uh, maybe even greater than, than they realise, and sometimes relatively, apparently, minor or arcane changes can lead to long-term you know, impacts on society in all sorts of ways. I mean, you, for instance, maybe um, change some of the rules on the way in which, for instance, people build up pensions or something. And that may initially seem like an incredibly arcane financial detail. But 30, 40, 50 years down the line, the way in which that has had accumulative effects on people may make very substantial differences to the living standards of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of people. So I think often when we're looking at policy change, you know, we, we expect things to be transformed quickly. But I think as many of the more profound changes can be things that will, whose effects will only be seen maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the line. It can be very frustrating though, can't it? Because I remember in the very first year of the Assembly's existence, there were debates about the concept of um, bed blocking, or as it is more politely referred to, delayed transfers of care. And uh, they were talking about merging budgets to make sure there was some sort of seamless um, uh, progress in the treatment of people so they wouldn't be stuck in hospital, they would go out and they would be cared for in the community, etc. But now, um, nearly 20 years later, the same kind of debate still goes on and the, the budgets have not really yet been merged in the way that was envisaged, I think, um, 20 years ago. So what is it? Why do we have this sort of slow-motion politics? I, sometimes yeah, I mean, I think on that specific example, I, I think that is an instance where I think you know, the short-term politics and long-term policy-making are often in considerable conflict. Um, you know, we, we have a thing called the National Health Service. I mean, in practice, it's really you know, four different distinct national health services uh, across the different nations of the UK. But in many respects, it's actually rather a misnamed thing. Perhaps it should be called, as some people said, a national sickness service and lots of people who know far more about this than me have suggested that you know too much of the resources goes into effectively putting things right with people once they've gone wrong rather than proactively trying to promote healthy lifestyles um, and you're spending substantial resources into preventing people getting sick in the first place but that sort of transition towards maybe more proactive promotion of, of health care would probably require you shifting significant resources out of what we come to, you know, the front line of the NHS would probably mean in the short term, you know, hospital waiting lists being longer, more operations being cancelled, you know, people waiting longer to get their first consultation, to get their operation, maybe some of them being denied treatment outright. Now, do you want to be the minister 
who has to stand up and say that this is what we're going to do, who has to defend the government against the sort of political attacks that will come on them when all these sorts of you know, very difficult individual cases hit the news headlines in the short term. You, know, you have to be an extraordinarily strong or politically courageous or maybe just politically foolish um, politician to be willing to take that on. And I think this is an example where the short-term politics do, to some extent, get in the way of longer-term policy change that quite probably would be for the benefit of society as a whole. Another point, really, along um, the same line is that there are people looking at the future of the Welsh economy and the future of public services in the context of people living longer uh, and the available resources perhaps drying up. Mm. People looking forward several years down the line, seeing that an increasingly higher proportion of the Welsh Government's budget is devoted to the health service, which is squeezing other services uh, out. And there, there seems to be this... Um, if, if you like, dissonance between what people are doing immediately and the decisions that ministers are taking mm-hmm. now, obviously for politically expedient reasons, mm-hmm. and what has to be done for the future. And a lot of people, it seems to me, are just avoiding the long term and thinking, well, all we need to bother about is what's going to happen in the next five years. I think lots of politicians are, are aware of these issues. Um, and, you know, I don't think that they're simply trying to ignore them, but... They are very difficult issues to tackle politically. If you're going to try and do something serious about long-term social care, then that is going to require an awful lot of money and that's got to come from somewhere. And if you're going to talk about that and where that money is coming from, you're likely to be then hit with accusations, people talking about death taxes, dementia taxes, things like that. And I think our politics has struggled to come to solutions to to long-term issues like that. Um, And maybe that leads us to, maybe it might lead us to thinking about the need for possibly slightly alternative ways of maybe trying to tackle some of these very difficult issues. Um, If they're too difficult for particular politicians to address, maybe we have to go about them in other ways. So interesting examples possibly come from Ireland recently where, for instance, they've had a couple of different, uh, slightly different forms of citizens' assemblies or, or, or conventions where you draw in more or less randomly selected ordinary citizens, ask them to spend some time looking at some very difficult politically contentious issues, in the case of Ireland, issues like gay marriage and abortion, you know, issues that were so contentious that many politicians simply didn't want to touch them. They were sort of like the political third rail. And, you know, these conventions or assemblies then looked at these issues, spent some time looking through them, came to some consensual recommendations, which could then be put to the public in a referendum. I mean, I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about doing politics. Sort of democracy, we understand, I think there are two major types, the predominant one obviously in the UK tradition is representative democracy, we vote in elections for politicians to take their decisions. What has become more common in the UK, certainly in the last 40 years, is direct democracy, where a particular issue is sort of plucked out of normal politics, put to some sort of yes-no 
vote of, of the people in a referendum. This third type, which some academics give the wonderfully unsexy name aleatory democracy, <laughs> you have just randomly selected ordinary people working together for some time, um, looking at an issue, and then you know, producing some sort of detailed recommendations, which could maybe go back to the legislative process or could go to, to a referendum. Um, I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about another form of, of democracy, another form of pulling ordinary people in and getting their input into the political process. In various ways it's been tried in Canada, in Iceland, in a few other places. And maybe our society, um, on some of these really big difficult issues that politicians are finding it difficult to grasp with, we have to be creative in, 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 in thinking about things doing that. I suppose one of, the, like one of the problems is that um, there's a very high level of disengagement from politics in Wales, isn't there? Yeah. To the point where a lot of people don't even realise what the uh, Welsh Government is responsible for. So I think there's quite a high proportion of people who actually think that the health service is run from Westminster. I mean, when you've got that level of ignorance, mm. how would that work? Ireland, for historical reasons... Mm has got a population that's much more engaged, perhaps, in political matters uh, than, than in Wales, where a lot of people have, perhaps, you know, the nationalists would say, have been quite content to have their country ruled by next-door neighbour for centuries. Yeah. Well, I think um, the idea of aleatory democracy, of these sort of people's conventions, whatever, is that you choose a randomly sector people, and a lot of them will not be, at the start of the process, particularly well-informed you then have to sort of work with those people, give them information, help them become educated in the issue, hear the arguments on different sides, consider alternatives, take some time, and then come to some sort of conclusion. There was a, another really interesting example of this run by the University College of London Constitution Unit looking specifically at the issue of Brexit, where, frankly, the UK government is, to put it at its kindest, not making an obvious success of the Brexit negotiations, not really making much of a success at coming up with a clear policy of its own. The Citizens' Assembly that, that UCL directed, I think, came up, frankly, with a, a much clearer, more consistent and more sensible policy that would have been much more at the centre of political gravity in the UK than anything the UK government has managed to do in, in more than two years since the referendum. Um, maybe this is a dimension of Welsh democracy that we could, we could look to develop. It would certainly be imaginative, I think, for, um, for a party or you know, a new First Minister to think about developing this. Now, we've had a series of elections of new party leaders in Wales. We've got a new leader of the Welsh Conservatives, a new leader of Plaid, a new leader of UKIP, and the... Uh, Welsh Labour Party is currently involved in its own leadership election. Do you see this as a bit of a watershed? Um, Labour Party perhaps has been quite lucky um, since the uh, Assembly was established in terms of maintaining its position as the, as the lead party, uh, unlike in Scotland uh, where Scottish Labour was overtaken by the SNP. Uh, the Labour Party in Wales does not have uh, a single strong challenger and therefore the opposition to Labour has been split. Do you see the, the new uh, leadership uh, scenarios 
um, actually breaking that logjam? Yeah, I must admit I was looking forward to a relatively quiet summer um, after, you know, it's been sort of election after election after election in the last few years. And then we ended up in the situation where for a while we simultaneously had leadership elections running for all four parties in the World Assembly. Uh, nobody thinks of the poor sophologist, do they? Um, I think for all of the parties who have new leaders, you know, and leadership figures do matter a great deal, and I think this is likely to have a big impact. And if we look first at Labour, as we probably should, as you know, there are long dominant political party here in Wales and the party in government at the Assembly. I mean, Labour in Wales, as you say, have been much more successful in managing the politics of the devolved era than their Scottish counterparts have been. In part, that's about the colour of the opposition they faced, but in part also it's been about what the Labour Party has done in those respective nations. And I think the Labour Party in Wales have been both more politically astute in the way in which they approached devolution, they've, you know, they've much more obviously protected a distinctively Welsh identity than Scottish Labour did, but also they've been luckier in their leaders, at, at least post Alan Michael. I mean, both Rodri Morgan and Carwin Jones were people who would authentically present uh, a strongly Welsh identity while still being clearly part of the UK Labour Party, and they were just simply you know, electorally appealing figures. The polling evidence on this is a bit episodic, but both of them have consistently been the most popular or second most popular politician in Wales, you know, for as long as we've been polling on these sorts of matters. Carwin Jones is due to stand down in a couple of months' time. Um, as I said in a, in a piece um, for the New Statesman recently, I think his party may only fully appreciate him once he's gone. Because I think he's politically, certainly electorally, is going to be a hard act to follow. Um, you know, at the moment, the overwhelming favourite to succeed him is Mark Drakeford. I think nobody would doubt that Mark Drakeford is a hard-working, talented, in many respects, very effective politician. But will he have the sort of popular touch that Rodri and Carwin had? Um, I'm doubtful. Yeah, he may well prove me wrong. An awful lot about politics in recent years has proved me wrong in many respects. But I think he's going to find that difficult to do. And so the Labour Party at the next devolved election may, for the first time since 1999, um, not have a popular and electorally effective Welsh leader leading their campaign in Wales. And of course, we saw in 1999, Labour suffered you know, unexpected losses. So you know, this could be more challenging for Labour than it, it might look at the moment. If we then look at the other parties, I, mean, I think Adam Price obviously is a, a really interesting figure right back since you know, the time he was first elected to Parliament on an 8% swing in the Kamalan East never seat in 2001. I mean, he's he stood out as a clearly very politically talented figure, and people have been talking about him pretty much ever since then as a likely future leader of Plaid Cymru. It turned out, of course, that when the Plaid leadership next became vacant, he was then not an elected politician in 2011, so wasn't eligible to stand. He's taken over now. I think it's very clear from everything we know about Adam Price, or everything we knew before he was elected, and what he's done in the short time since, is that he's going to challenge his party, he's going to come forward with lots of ideas, some of which will not necessarily be that easy for people in the party to accept. Um, I think you know, 
we, we know with Adam Price we'll get lots of ideas, we'll get lots of energy. We know that at his best he is possibly the most effective political performer in the Welsh Assembly. I mean, he can be an extremely effective public speaker. Um, I think he will rally a lot of people within Plaid Cymru. We don't yet know, though, what he'll be like as a party leader. Can he um, revitalise Plaid as an organisation? I think their, their organisation, their HQ and machinery on the ground clearly needs improving. Can he lead a team effectively? Can he also, this is maybe the biggest question, and which will be, I suppose, will reflect both on him and also the team advisors he builds around him. You know, we, we know he's somebody who will come out with lots of ideas. Can he be wise in which of those ideas he chooses to give prominence to? Because, um, I mean, Adam Price seems to be a sort of ideas machine. He'll generate lots of ideas. They're not always ones that will have the greatest political traction. Some of them might even indeed do his party damage. So can he and the team around him be effective in selecting which of those ideas are the ones to take with and run and put before the Welsh people and which are the ones to maybe leave for the long term? I think one thing we can say for sure with Adam Price as leader, it won't be dull. Mm. (laughs) Uh, The other parties then, I mean... You know, the Welsh Tories, people sometimes have talked about them as being the English party in Wales. I mean, how unfair is that when you have a, a leadership contest between Davis and Davis to succeed Davis? I mean, how much more Welsh can you get than that? Um, I mean, Paul Davis is clearly, in style, a very different character from Andrew R.C. Davis. Um, and they could be less likely to try sort of you know, flirting with political populism. He's I mean, instinctively a quieter, more consensual figure. He's, he's more obviously like Nick Bourne, his predecessor but one, than, than Andrew R.T. Davis. But you know, he's, he's certainly no soft touch, and I think he's deservedly respected across the parties in the Assembly. The key question that faces Paul Davis is the same one that faced Andrew R.T. Davis, that faced Nick Bourne, which the Conservatives haven't yet found a solution to, which is how can they break out of this sort of permanent opposition status in the Assembly? Um, they came very close to it, of course, briefly in 2007, almost going into the to the Rainbow Coalition. Um, that's about the only time they've come close to breaking out of that position. And how can the Conservatives become anything other than a permanent, somewhat marginalised opposition party in the Assembly? You know, there's no very clear and obvious solution to that. I mean, short of some tidal wave of popular support. Um, which the Conservatives haven't had in Wales since about 1859. So, um, well, there was that moment before the general election last year when yeah. they were doing extremely well in the opinion polls. Yes, there were I all mean, sorts of bizarre suggestions about how many seats they could have uh, won at that time. Well, indeed, our, our first two Welsh political barometer polls in the election last year had them ahead, and I will never know for, for sure. I still think those polls were broadly correct at the time, um, but you know, Labour pulled it back very effectively. In the Assembly, I mean, they need, obviously, to increase their, their vote share, their number of seats. But their sort of strategic problem is, that, OK, even if the Tories win 15, 16, 17 seats in the Assembly at the next election, which would be better than they've ever done, that's still probably not going to put them into government unless they can find other people, other parties they can work with. And how can they do that? Um, none of their leaders thus far has found a solution. I say Nick Bourne came closest to it. As for UKIP under Gareth Bennett, I mean, 
right reason to be unkind. I mean, Gareth Bennett has not hitherto struck me as obvious leadership material, but there he is. He's the clear choice of the UKIP membership in Wales. One thing I think he has politically got right in terms of UKIP's future is trying to position them more clearly as an anti-devolution party. I mean, all the survey evidence we have has suggests that for more than a decade and a half, the majority of people in Wales support Wales being a devolved nation within the UK. But there remains a clear body of opinion, maybe 15, 20% or so of people, who think that the Assembly should be abolished. Uh, we saw in the last election that you know, the abolished the Assembly Party with pretty much no publicity and no resources were able to get almost 4.5% of the vote, pretty much just on their name. Um, and I think if they were able to join with a clearly anti-devolution UKIP, you know, that may be potentially the salvation of UKIP as an Assembly Party. I mean, the rest of UKIP seems to be dissolving into an ever more fractious mess, but if they could corner the market in anti-devolution votes, that may be a way of them retaining a presence in, in the Assembly after 2021. Now, obviously, from Plaid Cymru's point of view, Adam Price has said that he would like to fight the next election uh, with a pledge not to go into coalition either with the Conservatives or with Labour. And he seems to have this scenario in his mind of a situation where you would have Plaid winning a number of seats extra, being the second biggest party, and then being in a position because Labour was not in the majority, and of course it's never been in the majority since the outset, that Plaid would have um, sufficient numbers in order to go for the First Minister's position. Uh, he seems to think in those circumstances that the Conservatives, even without the promise of a coalition, would be prepared to back him. And therefore, he would be elected First Minister, he would then form a minority government, and he would then say to the Conservatives, I'm not going to let you come into uh, government with me. You've got a choice. You either back my minority administration or you don't and you kick us out of office and you've got Labour again. Is that a plausible scenario? Yes, I think it is plausible, which is not to say that it is likely. A general point, minority government is not a very unusual form of government around the world. I mean, we have, to some extent at least, a minority government both at Westminster and the Assembly at the moment. More generally, if you look across the democratic world, it's a fairly common form of government. Um, and the Prime Minister's office is not necessarily always held by the leader of the largest party at all. So you know, by international standards, this would not be extraordinary or terribly unusual. I think the more difficult aspects of it would be the specific politics of that. For Plaid Cymru being seen to be sort of getting into bed with the Conservatives in, in any shape or form would be still, I think, politically difficult. It would be difficult, I think, internally within Plaid. I think it may well be difficult with a lot of their potential voters as well. I mean, we know from all the research that's been done through all of the different devolved elections and, and other times that there's a significant chunk of the Welsh electorate who are broadly sympathetic to both Labour and Plaid Cymru. 
And in Westminster elections, these people overwhelmingly vote for Labour. In devolved elections, sometimes a, whole, a big chunk of them will, will lean towards Plaid, or they'll maybe split their tickets, maybe vote Labour on one ballot and, and Plaid on another. The best way for Labour to keep all those people on side and voting solidly Labour is to be able to realistically scare those people with the possibility of Plaid in some way teaming up with the Conservatives. So you know, the politics of this with the electorate could be difficult for Plaid Cymru. There's also, I think, potentially some significant political difficulties for the Conservative Party. This is the Conservative and Unionist Party, after all, and Adam Price has talked about making independence you know, um, the centrepiece of everything that Plaid Cymru is doing, and of course that is something that the Conservatives overwhelmingly um, oppose. So, you know, a valid question for the Conservative Party in Wales would be, well, why should we put in to power a First Minister whose you know, overwhelming objective in life is to, is to destroy the union that we value so much? I mean, Labour, you know, they might not like Labour particularly, but Labour is still, in Wales, overwhelmingly a unionist party, albeit a devolutionist unionist party. You know, what is the political incentive for the Conservatives to do that? Yeah, sure, it would mean a change of the party holding the First Minister's office and the other ministerial portfolios. But if they're not getting ministerial office themselves out of it, and if the union is in some way being threatened... What are the Conservatives, what's the incentive for them to do this? I suppose they could get a bit of pork barrel. They could also reconcile themselves to the fact that in order for Wales to become independent, there would have to be a referendum and maybe they would take the view that it's highly unlikely that people Mm -hmm. of Wales would vote for independence. Mm -hmm. I mean, they did back, the the Scottish Conservatives tacitly backed the SNP in 2007, didn't they? Sort of, yes. uh, I mean, on on the initial vote and going to government, I think they abstained, but then, well, I mean, the SNP played that initial minority government situation incredibly skillfully, and um, I mean, whatever else you might think about him, that's where I think all Alex Salmon's political wiles came to the fore, and he did at times, you know, short-term deals with the Conservatives. At times, he did deals with other parties, and um, you know, you could see a minority situation like that being being politically workable. It's, it's how you get to that situation in the first place. I think the politics of that are very difficult. Because, you know, we don't know who will be the other parties in the Assembly. As I said, I, I think it's possible to see if they push the anti-devolution line, UKIP retaining some presence in the Assembly. I think it would be very difficult for Plaid or indeed Labour to look to work with them. Who else might be there? You know, might there be uh, some revival of the Liberal Democrats? We're not seeing it yet, obviously, in the polls, but maybe even if they have a presence once more in the Assembly, three, four, five, six seats, that's another potential player. You know, The arithmetic and the coalition or minority government dynamics around that arithmetic could be extremely interesting um, in May 2021. And of course, if, if Labour are led by a new leader who isn't quite as electorally appealing, if Plaid's new leader, Adam Price, become, you know, is able to raise their level of vote share, then we start to maybe to move into the sort of arena where maybe if Labour's losing some ground, Plaid are gaining some seats, where all these different options start to become at least plausible. A lot to look forward to, uh, Roger Raman Scully. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Thank you.